0: I was praying this last week and thinking, just going back over some memories. And um, many, many years ago, a good friend of mine—he uh, started in ministry because he was not a Christian. But there was a guy named Bill Wilson who was doing a ministry in Florida, and he picked this my friend up when he was just a kid on the corner and took him to a sidewalk Sunday school. That's what he did. So my friend became a Christian, and then he started working with this ministry, and he followed that ministry from Florida. To Brooklyn, New York, and then he started his own branch of that in L.A., and so that's where I met him, and uh, he was a missionary, a home missionary with the Assemblies of God, and uh, he, the church that I was youth pastor at at the time uh, rented him a house for next to nothing as a missionary, and he had an office downtown L.A. at Fifth and Town, and if you're from the L.A. area, that's L.A.'s Skid Row. That's what that's called. So I used to go down there with him, and, and um, we would take young people down at different times, and I remember being confronted with a side of, of kind of the inner city and skid row that I'd never really, really been that um, familiar with. I grew up in San Diego. You know, we have our own little skid row, but it's not the same as L.A. remember the first time I went down there with him, and we were walking around, you know, what's typically skid row. It's a few blocks, you know, and you can walk around. And, and we were walking around, and I remember as we were walking, like imagine there's buildings right here, and there were these lines on the on the on the street, on the sidewalk. Sidewalks are really wide. And these lines are right here, and they were really symmetrical, straight lines, but they weren't like drawn lines. It was just like faded outlines of something. I said, what in the world? I wonder what's going on here. He goes, Oh, that's that's where the people sleep. I'm like, what do you mean? He goes, that's body oil, what that is. He goes, People sleep right there. I said, Well where are they? And he goes, Well the sun's shining right here. They're not here in the sun. They're not gonna lay in the sun. And plus, you know, at that time it was around lunchtime, and he goes in there, and he named whatever ministry he was feeding at the time. So there's like a network of ministries that feed, and people kind of know the network, and they're kind of walking around. And so, you know, that I'd never seen that before. And so as we walked around, you know, we ran into a few people and tried to talk to them. And what we found is a lot of people uh, don't really want to talk to you, especially if you're asking questions, because. Part of sometimes the reason they 're there is to avoid scrutiny or avoid questions, or just they 're not social, you know a lot of mental illness, a lot of paranoia, and we, we would go back often with with young people and food and and every opportunity I could any time i 'd get someone to talk to me, I had one really driving question I wanted to know how they ended up there. I wanted to know why are they there you can 't just come out and say that why are you here because you know inherent in that question is almost a judgment like. What The heck are you doing here? That's not what I'm saying. I just I really wanted to know what what had happened in your life that ended you here? because nobody probably grows up and you know goes to high school and thinks someday, someday, if I do everything right, I can sleep on a street in l a It doesn't happen that way. you know and, and the climate in l a is really conducive to that because you know it's it's never really really cold, not like not like midwest cold and it, and l a gets hot, but it's never so hot that you can't. You know, you can't stay outside. I mean, it's, it's never that hot. I, I did find some interesting stories, you know, over the years as I would talk to people. And again, not very many people want to talk about it, but, but there are some interesting stories. You know, some people, it's, they really are down on their luck. And it's a cascade of bad decisions, and they're overwhelmed and owe people money. Some people are running. Some people are running from bad relationships or bad, you know, people are after them. You know that that happens, and it's it's a way to hide out because you know there's nobody checking IDs. You just you can you can live there and and exist. I mean nobody's getting wealthy and nobody's getting fat. I mean they're just existing. Some people um, prefer that life, and I'm, that may be hard for you to understand, but some people prefer it. That it was during those years is the first time I ever heard this saying. Maybe you've heard it before, but um, this this one guy he was he was a fascinating man because. Every time we would be down there feeding, he would come and he would quote scripture and he'd preach his own little sermonette and one time I asked him, i said why why are you preaching at us i 'm just curious and he goes, "Well, I figure i 'd preach at you before you preach at me, and maybe you wouldn 't preach at me <laughs> and we 'd laugh because we didn't we didn't do that i mean there 's a lot of ministries that would do that that 's not what we were down there for and uh and he he and i we we would talk every time I could find him, you know we would talk and his story, he told me the saying that I was going to tell you. He said, not all who wander are lost. I said, well, okay. I said, so you, you like being here? He goes, yeah. I don't have any worries. I don't have any responsibilities. And I said, well, obviously you've got a background in church. And, you know, and he goes, oh, I was in the ministry. And I never could get out of him what ministry or what denomination or what church or what happened or why he was there. He was too clever for that. Very evasive. And I don't know what the deal was. And it really didn't matter. I wasn't, I'm not, I really wasn't trying to judge him. I was just curious, what's going on? Why are you here? How did you end up here? You know, what are the life circumstances that brought you to this place? Because in the back of my mind, I'm thinking about, you know, people that I love and people that I care about, and I want to help, I want to make sure that doesn't happen to anybody. And I always was wondering if there was a way I could do something or say something or Put them in Teen Challenge or a program, or is there a way to get you from there back to here? You know, what? What? I want to see. I want to. You know, feeding them is, is important, but I want to see them out of there. You know, it broke my heart every time to see a lot of times the same people, and you know, I wonder was it a family issue? Did something happen in your family? You know, at times you'd run into a runaway, or you'd run into somebody who had. Maybe they come, and this happens all the time in LA, you know, they, they think they're going to be a movie star, and if they could just get to LA, they could get a break, and, and when that didn't happen, you know, they ended up with no money, no food, and God forbid, I mean, there's tons of kids who end up, you know, in, in, in uh, prostitution and human trafficking and other horrible things. You wonder sometimes, I mean, some of the people down there with some of the mental illness, you wonder if it's just not treatable or... If, Somehow they didn't want to take their meds, and then they ended up in a cycle that you, you couldn't break free from. It's interesting, though, because so what, I, what I look at them is, you know, I, I know human beings, you know, we're resilient, and you see people in terrible life situations that still somehow find a way to make it out. You know, I've, I've talked to young people who, I remember one time we were getting ready for a missions trip, and we were just sharing kind of family backgrounds or whatever, and and uh, we came around to this one girl, and I'd never heard her story before, and I'd never heard her really even talk before. But she wanted to go to Mexico, and so she started telling her story. And she just said, "She, um, she said, well, I live with my, I live with my aunt because my mom is dead, and then my dad killed her, and he's in prison, and I saw it all happen. And I, I didn't know what to say. And every other kid is crying." And you're thinking, look at her, straight-A student, just going to Mexico on a missions trip, trying to raise her money, doing every fundraiser. And you think, how is she making it? I don't know if I'd make it. If that had happened to me, you know? And 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 as she told the story, it's, she didn't even flinch, and you know, all the other kids are crying. And, and then she said, I don't need you to feel sorry for me. Can the next person talk now? And I thought, wow. A strong person. How does that happen? You know, you you think about people's lives and what they go through, and how does it work that they, you know, a lot of times you don't know you don't know their backstory at all. You see people, and you're not you you just don't know. You don't know what they've been through. You don't know what um, they've overcome. And sometimes it's not that deep. I mean, sometimes it is, and sometimes it isn't. But sometimes it's not. I was reading, you know, one time about that, and it was talking about how. You know, you can. There's all these studies that have been done on maybe children who've who've grown up in a chaotic or or a abusive or horrible situation like that, and then maybe one of them makes it out and becomes a lawyer or doctor or something. And you think, how does that happen? And they say a lot of times it's just it's just one adult who believed in them or one adult who said, you know what, you're talented. And a lot of times in this this study I was reading, you know, the the young person would go back to that adult and say, thank you for what you did and. A lot of times the adults like, I don't even remember saying that, but it was that one thing that gave them hope. And they knew that that somebody cared or that they, somebody saw something in them that was worth fighting for and they could press on and make a difference. Like I said, it could be a teacher, it could be a parent, it could be a Royal Ranger leader here at church, or it could be a good friend or an aunt or an uncle or somebody. And so often, you know, that that dysfunction we see in families gets, gets perpetuated and you, there's a cycle and... And well-meaning parents can't help it, but that's all they know. And so they perpetuate it, and kids are, the, are unfortunately the, the victims of all that. And each generation adds one more link to a chain that's almost impossible to break. Unless somebody says, no, I can break that. It doesn't have to be that way. I think of my dad a lot, and you know, it's so strange, isn't it? Sometimes you know, I, hear, I, I remember as a kid hearing my dad's stories, and I think, that can't be It's impossible because I knew my dad he wasn't like that I mean I can't imagine you know he would talk about how his father was you know very angry all the time and very abusive and never talked to him I remember when my grandfather died I was 10 when he died and and um, I remember my dad coming back from that trip and saying my dad told me he loved me for the very first time on his deathbed and I remember thinking that's not possible because my dad told me he loved me all the time. And I just, I couldn't fathom, how could you be raised in that family and in that environment and not be like that? I mean, it just, it didn't compute. So it was years later where I was driving, my, my grandmother used to come, she lived in Northern California, we lived in San Diego, it was about a 12-hour drive, and, and it seemed like every summer she would come and spend like a month with us, and so usually I'd fly up and then drive her down is what would happen. And so we'd have this 12-hour she would talk the whole way i never said anything she would just talk the whole way. you know anybody like that she could talk for hours and hours and hours and so and if you know me that was difficult i would just listen and ask questions and she would just keep talking but i remember one trip in particular i said hey grandma let me ask you some questions did this really happen this way and every one of those stories he told were true i was sitting i was in amazement Sometimes I was close to tears because some of his stories just didn't seem right. Because he, he, you know, the walk to school both ways, uphill in the snow and all that. It, it was, those were the kind of stories he would tell. He told, me that, he told me that when he was a kid, his dad would wake them up beating them. And he would tell them he was doing that because he knew they were going to do stuff during the day that he wouldn't catch them doing. And then when they got home, he'd beat them. And I, was, I, would, I would say, what do you mean beat? He goes, I mean beat. And you couldn't get away, because if you did, then you'd get, get it worse when he caught you. I, I would look at, how can that be possible? And ask my grandma, is that true? She said, yeah, it was, it was torture. It was horrible. And she said, um, well, my dad said it stopped when my grandma couldn't take it anymore. And one day she came up behind him with a cast iron skillet. And if you know what those are, I mean, that's, that's not like a frying pan. I mean, that's like a club. That's a weapon weapon. And she said she hit him so hard. And he was six four, you know, hardworking guy. He bare-knuckle fought for money. He broke horses for money and then, then ran their ranch. I mean, he was a mean, hard person. And my dad said that she came up behind him and hit him so hard that he, he got knocked out. And she told the kids, just go to school. She told them, if, if you come back and I'm not here, then go to your aunt and uncle's house. Because she didn't know what would happen when he woke up. And she said that was the last time he hit him. They never talked about it, don't know what happened, but that was the last time. So I remember asking my dad, I never have seen you ever. He never raised his hand toward us one time, ever. Never responded in anger. I don't really remember him ever yelling, ever. And I remember asking him, and he said, well, I told God when I had kids, I'd never, ever want to do that. So he, he, he decided that it would never be like that for him. It was different for him. He broke that chain. He broke that in our family. There's some stories in Scripture, though, where I think a lot of times we don't look at the backstory story because I think what happens is we get so familiar with the Bible stories and we know the moral of the story. We know what the story's trying to say, and we focus on that, and we sometimes miss the, the trees for the forest, so to speak. We see the big picture, and we miss the... The, the ridiculous lives that are there. You know, I, I, in, in this whole marriage, you know, you hear a lot about marriage and people talk about Christian marriage or biblical marriage. And, and I heard somebody say once, what biblical marriage are they actually talking about? Because if you look at the bi- marriages in the Bible, not very many, <laughs> they're not really ones you want to point at and say, have a marriage like this. Now in the New Testament, there's all, all sorts of, uh, you know, things in, in the New Testament that say, be married and do it like this. But the actual story, marriage as you see, the backstories are horrible. What I want to do for a for a few Wednesday nights at least is look at the story of Joseph. And what I want to do is is take his life and look at some of the 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 amazing things that we can learn from the life of Joseph. But before we do that, let's look for a minute at his life. It's it's really an interesting story. If you look at the book of Genesis, the first book in the Bible There are some huge characters in the book of Genesis. Who who, who are the main stars in Genesis? Can you just name them real quick? Moses is is enormous, of course. Well, actually, Moses, I take that back. Moses doesn't actually appear till Exodus. Abraham is the biggest. He is the biggest. Noah is is huge, of course. Someone said Adam and Eve. That's later, too. But you have Abraham, Isaac, Isaac jacob and joseph what's interesting about joseph though is as large as abraham is in the story and he is joseph actually is covered with the same number of chapters 14 for abraham 14 for joseph and then if you actually count the verses which i didn't i just trusted the person who said this but um, the story of joseph is actually 25 percent longer than Abraham, which surprised me, because Abraham is enormous in the in the Hebrew faith and in Christianity. But I think there's something for us to pick up there. I think there's a reason that the Holy Spirit put it in the Bible that way, that we need to see some things. Uh, I never knew this before, but as I was studying this and studying some of the backstory, the parallels to the life of Jesus are really, really striking with the life of Joseph. Has anybody heard this before? I never even heard that before. It was really fascinating. You look at how both of them were chosen and beloved by their father. Even, even you know, this may be pulling too much out of it, but if you think about Jesus was placed on the cross between two criminals and one was saved and one condemned, and you think about Joseph in the prison with two criminals, exact same thing. One, one lived and one was condemned. Both of them forgave the, the very people who caused them the pain. I mean, it's really interesting. Uh, there's a guy named Arthur Pink. He's, he's listed 101 comparisons like that. Some of them are real stretches, but, but still, it's fascinating. The thing about Joseph's life, and I know a lot of you know the whole story of Joseph, so probably right now you're just racing through the story and you know about him, you know about his story, and you know how how really in the Bible, I mean, he exemplifies this verse, Romans 8, 28, and we know that all things work together for good to those who love God and are called according to his purpose. And in Joseph's life, we see that played out over and over and over, how these small, insignificant things end up being huge things that God takes them and turns them into incredible things, where I'm sure as it was happening to Joseph, you know, you can't even see it coming. You think about how he turns the tables and Like the coat, the colorful coat he gets ends up being the reason that his brothers sell him into slavery, but then the people sell him into slavery, sell him to the captain of the guard of Egypt, and then he gets put in prison, but he's put in prison with pharaohs, two of pharaohs, a a, a baker and a cup holder. So, I mean, all these little things, God turns into huge, huge things. God does that. He turns amazing little things in our life into amazing, awesome things. Something else you can look at is God is always at work. We've talked about this before, but he's always, always at work. And there could have been many times where Joseph, like us, gets confused about where he is in his life, and he could, probably like you, say, hey, 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 I deserve better than this. I'm not a bad person. I've done good. I'm innocent. You may think that, and and things happen like they happen to Joseph, and and as it goes, you, you may think, oh, what's God doing? But he's at work. But getting back to the backstory of Joseph, I want to take just a look, and, and I want us to look real quick at some of the things about his life. Let's look at this, how it opens up, and it tells us about jo- uh, Joseph. So Jacob settled again in the land of Canaan, where his father had lived as a foreigner. And this is the account of Jacob and his family. When Joseph was 17 years old, he tended his father's flocks. Does anybody remember what, what son order he was in the 12 sons? He, oh, I'm sorry, 11. Good. He was 11. So he's 17. So how old are his older brothers and brothers? They're old. We're talking men with children and families. Okay. So here's how it opens up with him. He's tending the flocks. He worked for his half brothers, the sons of his father's wives, Bilhah and Zilpah. But Joseph reported to his father, some of the bad things his brothers were doing. And uh, Jacob loved. Yeah. Jacob. Yeah. Jacob loved Joseph more than any of his other children because Joseph had been born to him in his old age. So one day Jacob had a special gift made for Joseph, a beautiful robe, but his brothers hated Joseph because their father loved him more than the rest of them and they couldn't say a kind word to him. That's how it opens up. I would say that is a dysfunctional family and I'm gonna, we're going to point out a few things right here. And when I think of a family and dysfunction, I, I know that you know this, but usually the little things you see are just the tip of the iceberg. You know, when you're at The Walmart parking lot and some mom is yelling at her kids and tosses them in the car. You know that's the least that those kids have to endure. And it breaks your heart. Because you know there's way worse going on behind closed doors. Think about this for a minute for his family. He had three stepmothers. Three. (laughs) He had ten stepbrothers and one stepsister. And they all lived at home there. Now God allowed polygamy he never endorsed it. But obviously in the polygamous situation there, you're going to have jealousy and insecurity and, and constant fighting and, and conflict over who's more important or more loved. And in that story, you see it over and over and over. And the kids are the ones caught in the conflict. They're caught in the middle of it all the time. You see other places where Jacob, their father, was a passive parent. He didn't step in and take care of things. Joseph's brothers, it's a continual cycle. All his brothers of horrible things, things a lot of times we skip over and don't even see how horrible it is. I mean, just as one example, Joseph's oldest brother at one point, Reuben, sleeps with his father's concubine in open. And because of that, later he's punished and not given the birthright. But this is all happening in the family. What kind of a home was this? It was horrible. So my question is, how did Joseph, how did he even make it through that? How did Joseph, so here, here's getting back to my, my introduction here. When I look at, when I was talking to these people on Skid Row, I'm thinking Joseph would be a good candidate to end up there. How did he not? How did he end up being such a godly man? Because as you look at the life of Joseph, there's many, many times where it would have been easy to sin. I mean, and we'll, get, we'll go through all this, but there's times where it looks like if he would have sinned, no one would have known and he would have, he could have, he could have had taken the easy way to prosperity, but he did not, and he was righteous. And it looked like at the time that he wasn't even to get, he wasn't going to be paid back or honored for his righteousness. Instead, he gets put in prison. Instead, he gets punished. Instead, he gets slayed, uh, sold into slavery. You wouldn't think like that, but here's the thing: I think even though Jacob was not a great parent, his dad. I think that there were times in Jacob's life where as a family, Joseph as a child would have seen things that would have changed his orientation. And I think what happened is he reached out to God and the other brothers didn't. I don't know why. We're not told all that. But let's look at a couple instances in their life. God responds to humble hunger. He does. He responds to humble hunger. When you're hungry for him and you're humble and you reach out to him... He responds to that. He responds to that. Don't ever get me wrong. I'm not saying he rewards it and there will be $100 in your pocket as you walk out of church. But the way he responds to that is he comes near to you, and it changes things. Because your relationship with God is going to be something that is going to be valuable to you and will change everything. Sometimes there will be that $100 in your pocket. But that's not why you respond in, in this humility. What I want to do is 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 take a look at some of the examples in his life. If you remember uh, Jacob's life, you remember he was a trickster. He took advantage of his brother Esau. He stole his birthright. He escapes and he runs from Esau. And while he's running from Esau, he stops and spends the night at Bethel. Do you remember what happened there? I, Charlotte, I saw your finger. What happens? Yep, he sees the ladder that's their way to heaven. He sees that, okay? Then he goes on, he has his family, and then as he's coming back, do you remember the story, Esau is coming to meet him. So Jacob, again, trying to work it all out for himself and take care of his own business, he sends gifts on ahead, kind of bribes to his brother, and then they hear that his brother's coming toward him with 400 fighting men. Now, Jacob doesn't have that. He has a big family and some servants, but he doesn't have an army, and Esau is coming with an army. So what does Jacob do? Jacob takes his family, splits them in half, You know, one wife, two wives' children and then two wives' children, and he splits them. So what he's thinking is, if Esau comes and he takes or kills my, one, one part of my family, at least some of them will be free. That's what he's thinking. Because you remember their culture. Remember what they did? I mean, they would sell them into slavery, whatever, take them as wives. I mean, it was a horrible, violent violent time at this time though uh, joseph's a young a young boy you imagine what he's thinking all this dysfunction in his family already going on you know the intrigue all these things happening and then he doesn't understand probably what is dad doing why are we getting separated and then this all happens so his dad disappears Uh, the bible talks about how he goes to the jebuk river and he prays and he readies himself to face the sins of his past and do you remember what happens he wrestles with God. The angel of the Lord comes and wrestles with him. And then they, Jacob will not let him go. And then the angel of the Lord touches him in his hip. He's wounded in his hip. And he says, I won't let you go till you bless me. So he blesses him. He submits to God and he changes. And he's different from then on. And they change his name to Israel. So here's what I want you to th- see. Joseph is a young boy at this time. And can you imagine what, he he doesn't know what's going on. I bet he's scared. He doesn't know what's happening, for sure. And he sees dad come limping back into camp. What did dad say? Dad told him, I met God. I wrestled with God. So what did did Joseph hear? I'll bet you what Joseph heard was, God is real. God is real. God is real. The next thing that happens in young Joseph's life is that as 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 they're going back, he sees that God is always, always working, because Jacob takes his family back to Bethel, and he tells them the story about it, and what he says is, what he says to them is that surely the Lord is in this place, and he wasn't even aware of it. Here, here's the thing about that stairway to heaven. you know we don't understand much about it. I mean, I don't know if there's little stairways all over the place and God just, or if it was just a dream, we don't know. But here's what we do know. God is always working. He is always, things are always happening. And what what Jacob said when he woke up from the dream is, God was right here and I didn't even know it. You know what he means? God is everywhere and he's always working. And most of the time we're completely unaware, completely unaware. So he takes his young family and he takes... He takes Joseph, they estimate that Joseph was probably about 13 at the time, and he tells them that that God is here and he's all around us, he's always here. He's giving Joseph an awareness that God is real and God is always around. Joseph latches on to that awareness somehow. And here's the next thing, God still has a plan for you. God still has a plan for you. You see, even as Joseph was a young child, I wonder if it sank into his, into his mind at some point that my dad is kind of a rogue, <laughs> you know, my dad's taken advantage of people. My dad's kind of a trickster, lies to his own father. I mean, all of these things are part of the family heritage. I'm sure Joseph knows the stories, but God still has a plan. God never gave up on Jacob all the way through all that nonsense. He didn't give up on Jacob. So, I'm sure what happens is you need to understand that even though your backstory is not clean, maybe your backstory needs, you know, it's like you need to go get a credit cleaning company or something. Maybe you need to go back in Facebook and get rid of some friends and erase some things. God is a God of do overs. He is. God at any point could have told Jacob, you know what, I'm tired of this. I'm going to find somebody who will serve me and not keep doing these silly things. But he did not he kept coming back over to Jacob. And I believe that Joseph saw that and saw that, no, there is a God like this. So here's what I think we need to do with this part of the story and Joseph's backstory. Even though he came from an incredibly dysfunctional family, still he trusted God. I think what we need to do is what he did and understand that no matter what happens in your life, God will make a way. God will make a way. No matter what, God will make a way. We see this later, later, later in Joseph's life. Once he, he's running all of Egypt and he's, he's controlling all the storehouses and his family comes and he supplies them with food and then he reveals who he is, and we'll talk about that later. But when he does reveal himself to them, they think, what do they think? He's going to exact revenge and pay them back. And what he says to them, you intended to me harm, but God intended it for good. What that means is he knows that God takes bad situations even if we cause them or somebody else causes them to us and he turns them into good. God can make a way. He always, always, always makes a way. The next thing I think we need to realize about Joseph and the way he saw the world is he, he was never a victim. Joseph never complains. And his life was horrible. Horrible. I know the first time as a kid I remember hearing that story and I was thinking, oh, my gosh, they threw him in a hole and left him to die. And then they came back and sold him. I mean, they just added insult to injury there. And I'm thinking, what could he have thought of? Now, we know from Scripture he was 17, 18 years old at the time. So he's not a child. But at the same time, slavery at any time in the world's, uh, history of the world is not a great thing, let alone in this time in history. I mean, it's a horrible life. He had no idea what stood in front of him. No idea. I mean, he could have, I, mean, I I just, on my mind, just races with horrible, horrible things. But regardless of all of it, he never was a victim. He never blamed anybody. He didn't do what most people do. Most people say, oh, well, you know, this happened to me, and so because of that, you know, I don't have any choice but to live my life this way. He never did that. He took responsibility, his own responsibility, for everything that happened, and he made the best of it. I'm reminded... There's a there's a book called Man's Search for Meaning. It's written by a, a Jewish man named Viktor Frankl. If you ever have a chance, it's really a short book, but it's really profound. He was he was a uh, Holocaust victim in Nazi Germany, and he was subjected to horrible torture and watched so many of his family members and neighbors horribly killed. And it was during that process that he was just asking, "What is the point of life?" Now he's not a Christian; he's a Jew. So we share some some of. Of the Bible and and the thought about that. But he says this the last of all great human freedoms. So, what he's saying is, you can take away all freedoms. You can put me in prison. You can take away my freedom of movement. You can take away everything that is dear to me. But the last freedom is one's response to any given set of circumstances. Do you hear what he's saying? You can take away everything, but you can't take away the way I respond to it. I still have control over that always. So my response is always my choice. And as I look at the, book of, at, at the book of Genesis here and read about Joseph, he always took the responsibility. He never blamed anybody. He chose to break the cycles himself, and he took the responsibility on himself for a new way of life. Something else we can learn from this backstory of Joseph. All of our choices outlive us. You ever think about that? All of our choices outlive us. Jacob's choices not only followed his family around, but no doubt were partly responsible for the way his sons lived. All of those choices. Joseph understood that. And because of that, he continued to make godly choices in spite of everything that had been done to him. I think about how my choices today are going to affect my children, my grandchildren, great-grandchildren, all of them. Jacob's mistakes had tragic effects on all of his family members. And if you look at how God guarded and, and shepherded Joseph through that and used him to protect the lineage of Christ And you think about all the people who were saved, the thousands, perhaps millions of people who were saved from starvation because of Joseph's choices. But not only that, the Christ child came through that line and it was preserved because of those choices. Had it been left to the other family members' choices, that would never have happened. Instead, God protected it through his. Every one of our choices matter. And as we walk through our life, every one of those choices make a difference. The last thing I want us to think about is this. God is always working everywhere. There are times in our life where we question that and we wonder, God, what are you doing? We wonder, God, how can this possibly be right? I deserve better. There's so many of those things that you think about and wonder about, but the fact is, he's always, always working. A friend of mine recently was going through a tough stretch and they said, um, I haven't seen it yet, but I can't figure out what God is trying to teach me through this. And I, I thought about that a long time. Because in that statement, it, it almost seems like God is making that happen. And I do think that there are times where he does send us a certain path for a certain reason. Then there's other times that, that it, it's not that God is specifically de- you know, controlling that, but he might allow that to happen, or it might be our own choices. But regardless, you can always learn something through these experiences. We can always step back and say, God, what, what could I learn right here? What is it that you want to teach me and develop in me? What character trait could you make different in me because of what I'm walking through right here? Always something to learn because he's always, always, always at work. I don't know if you'll ever see a stairway to heaven, but they're everywhere. If you want to look and see him, he's always doing something. In somebody's life, somewhere, he's always, always working. So here's what I want to do. This is kind of an introduction for the next few weeks, but... I'd like you guys to shut your eyes for just a think. second. I want to ask you a couple questions, just questions between you and God and questions for you to think about, questions for you to process and think through what, what is God doing? So my question first is, what is God doing in you right now? You may not have thought of it that way. You might have thought of it as somebody else is doing this to me or, or my boss is doing this or whatever. But ask yourself this, what could God be teaching you right now? that up till now you weren't willing to learn or you weren't ready to learn because you had maybe felt more like a victim, but instead you could choose not to be a victim and actually learn something and come out on top of this, what is it you could learn? What could God do in you that would make you better from now forward? What could God use from your past to minister to people in your present? What do you need to do to take what you're going through and turn it into something that could be not only teachable for you, but gold for your kids and your grandkids? What decisions do you need to make going forward that would change all of that? One more question. Dave, could you put some music on? One more question. What is going on in your world right now that you need God to do that Romans 8, 28 and turn it into something good I know a lot of us have something like that going on and you want to see him take what's not good right now but because you love him and you're called according to his purpose that you want to see him take it and turn it into something good what is that thing here's what we're going to do it's about 8.15 we have time You know, usually youth will get out in about 15 minutes kids programs the same thing I want to invite you, if you want to come down here for prayer, if you would like even special prayer, I'd be happy to pray with you. I know we have some board members here who would want to pray with you. If you would like special prayer, we'd be happy to pray for you. But I just want to encourage you to reach out to him for a few minutes and just talk to him about this. God, what is it you want to do in me? What is it you want to change in me? So I'm going to just pray for you, and that will be kind of a closing prayer, but then also if you want prayer or if you want to just spend some more time with him, you're, you're invited to do that. God, we don't want to ever be victims. We want to be overcomers in you.